You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. On November 8, 2016, Vladimir Putin became the first Russian president of the United States. What could arguably be called the greatest intelligence operation in the history of the world had been executed, and the result was that the candidate Moscow had supported had won. Putin didn't care what happened next. He was certain that with Trump in power, the American public would be so enmeshed with chaos that they would be completely indifferent on how to respond if they responded at all. That was the weakness with democracy. It required consensus, process, and time. Putin relied on none of that. He had ordered and executed a daring political mission. His cyber spies, state-run news media, and his global elite rich, the oligarchs, had successfully influenced the American public's mindset so deeply that they were in total denial that it had been done at all. As both Baudelaire and Kaiser Sosa said, Qui plus la belle de Russe, ont du diable, est la vous persuader qu'il n'existe pas. The best trick of the devil was to convince you that he didn't exist. Malcolm Nance is a former United States Navy senior staff chief petty officer specializing in naval cryptology. As an expert on counterterrorism and military intelligence, he's an analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. He's the author of The Plot to Hack America, How Putin's Cyber Spies and WikiLeaks Tried to Steal the 2016 Election. His new book is The Plot to Destroy Democracy, How Putin and His Spies Are Undermining America and Dismantling the West. Thank you for joining me, Malcolm. It's my pleasure. The very first sentence of your book is really mind-boggling, but I think what struck me so much about your book was that the way you structure your argument, you let the reader make all your arguments for you by giving us a history that has never been viewed. And this is the, what you do is, in a sense, uh, what uh, Putin and his people do is you create a new perspective for us to understand current events. Well, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yes, as a matter of fact, I spell out in the book how the Russians developed this process of creating a, a, a network of information around you uh, or whoever their target is, for example, like Donald Trump, to the point where you are so enmeshed in their, their perspective that it's literally like a bubble that's around you. And then after you're in the bubble for a while, you start believing that the information that you have is yours and that you developed it. And so I didn't intend the book to be that way. I intended the book to be a very, very strong uh, education in not just the Russian hacking, uh, but how and why did Russia do this? And you just can't say, well, they wanted chaos. Well, they, they, you know, they wanted to put Donald Trump in office. There has to be a strategy. My previous book, which is part of a trilogy, by the way, this is the second book in a trilogy. My previous book, The Plot to Hack America, was an actual intelligence analysis. It was a very quick read, very fast written um, intelligence analysis projecting what Russia would needed to have had in place and what they would had to have done to affect the election of Donald Trump. And as you know, 
that book came out about six, seven weeks before the election. And it came out on the exact same day that the CIA was submitting an exactly identical report <laughs> to Barack Obama, which said the exact things. And the only difference was that I had named my mission, because all spies, we name our enemies' missions, right? I had named it Operation Lucky Seven, and they had named it Grizzly Step. That was that's it, and in fact, um, it almost when it when the president came out in October and spelled out everything. The first thing that uh, a producer from MSNBC said to me was, "Wow, it must be great to have the president validate all of your writing." Uh, but that's only because intelligence analysts and, and professionals we think exactly alike. They saw what I was seeing. And when given the order, they produced in the exact same amount of time a, a report that could only be what it could be. And so that book was a projection. And for the last two years, that projection has been borne out 200%. Everything that I've written in there and thought was real uh, has, has come to play. Only difference was I estimated there would be 260 Russian intelligence staff and subcontractors carrying out operations that would be similar to the Internet Research Agency. And we now know the Internet Research Agency alone had like 90 English linguists. Uh, and so, that in fact, the, the Internet Research Agency may have had as many as 10 more organizations. So the number is probably in the low thousand range. Wow. So um, that's what we were up against. The plot to destroy democracy is the follow-on where I now have to explain to the reader, listen, this had, they had a strategy, they have a goal, and it has to do with Russia within the, the place of geopolitics. But also, these old communist beliefs that the worldview of America was fundamentally wrong, and that they, as now ex-communists, were still keeping the goals of Soviet communism, which was from 1917 to 1989. American democracy is, is the one thing holding us back. It must be destroyed. It should be replaced back in the Soviet era, replaced with communism. In this era, replaced with oligarchy and you know, replaced with autocracy, the, the, the uber-rich running a global elite. And they also use, because the head of that country is a KGB officer, <laughs> This is why I explain how the KGB and now the Russian intelligence carry out their operations over history, which, as you can see, when you read it at the end, it's they, they just couldn't do it in the old days because the media world didn't move that fast. Now it moves at the fast of a stroke of a keyboard and they could get away with all of their dreams. It's just now they're doing it for money and and to re-engineer the global um, uh, the global uh, movement to degrade, if not destroy democracy and replace it with an axis of uber-rich autocracies of self-serving strongmen, which surprisingly is coming to pass. Now, one of the things that most interested me about you, this book, and you make this, you say this several times and it's so true, and this actually, I think, began with, uh, on uh, September 11th, 2001, mm -hmm. when our own, the pinnacle of our technology was used, of our peaceful technology yeah. was used against us in a warlike manner. Yeah. And what you write is that what the Russians have done and made use of is they're using democracy 
to destroy democracy. Absolutely. <laughs> Explain how that works. Yeah, it's, it's a brilliant strategy if you think about it. So now we have a, a nation that has all of this deep history of, of Soviet-era dirty tricks oh, that yes. truly understands us. Uh, you have the leader of that country, a former KGB officer who used to run agents to steal computer technology from West Germany and bring it to East Germany. So this guy already <laughs> understands the value of technology. And he was young. And he, look, Vladimir Putin, when he was a teenager, went to a KGB open house and told them, uh, one of the KGB officers, I want to be a KGB officer. What do I have to do? And they jokingly said, you have to go to university you, uh, and you have to get a degree in law and then come back to us and then you can be a KGB officer. And that's exactly what he did. And he was brought into the KGB deeply into the old Soviet system uh, back when utmost loyalty to the KGB was the number one thing that they valued, loyalty to the nation, loyalty to the organization. Boy, that sounds familiar. Yeah. And unfortunately so. <laughs> I know. But when he, when the, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the KGB stayed together, mm -hmm. right? I mean, sure. they came in one day and they changed the letters, right? <laughs> they, they first were the FSK and then they became the FSB with, and they broke off clandestine service to the SVR. But they're still the same organization, you know? And um, so fundamentally, he, when he rose to power and he liquidated essentially all the assets of the city of St. Petersburg, where he was born, um, and made billions upon billions of dollars you know they had to come up with a fa with an ideology that would control the nation and they they and putin and his and his peers his his top four advisors are all ex-kgb officers you know or yeah, i putin's think three kgb one fsb right putin's philosophers uh well actually his the new politburo i call them uh -huh. they realize russia is a fundamentally conservative nation mm, and uh, so in trying to figure out what was it Russia would be, Putin, of course, wanted to make Russia a much greater power, one that used its economic power of oil and gas, weapons sales. And they, they decided, not decided, he decided for the nation that he would harness the Russian Orthodox Church, he would harness their wealth, and he created a subclass of ruler, the oligarchy. You know, the, the, the now richest men in Russia and anyone who didn't play ball, he just seized their assets and banished them. And, and, and now he has a new Politburo, which is made up of multi-billionaires uh, with him at the top being, you know, there are estimates that he may have as much as $200 billion of hidden wealth. Wow. You know, so that being said, they had to when they decided that would be their course. They also still had that mindset of how can we further ourselves around the world in the West when you have these U.S. presidents like, you know, like Bill Clinton and George, uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama, who were maintaining the role of president where Russia was an adversary who needed to be brought into the democratic world, hence their application for partnership for peace, which is a pre-NATO thing when Boris Yeltsin was president. They didn't want that. They, you know, back in the late, 90, uh, the, the, the late 90s, there were polls where as much as 50% or more of Russia wanted to return to Soviet-style communism. 
Hmm. And he understood that. And he goes, well, no, what Russia needs is a strong man. And a strong man must project ourselves and our strength around the world. And so he couldn't do that without bringing the world to him. So some of his philosophers uh, who were ardent communists during the communist era still maintained that democracy was the one thing holding them back. But now they were an autocracy. And they were an autocrat. Putin is an autocrat like Tsar Nicholas I was. And Tsar Nicholas I, unlike Peter the Great, he was nothing like Peter the Great. Although Peter the Great used to disguise himself and infiltrate industries around Europe mm -hmm. in order to bring Western technology to Russia, Putin has no interest in turning Russia into the West. He wants to re-engineer the West to be a subordinate to Russia and to get to end, essentially, the Washington's dominance on, on that part of the world. So he adopted the Tsar Nicholas I philosophy of orthodoxy in the Russian church, nationalism to the flag, and autocracy as the, global le as the national leadership structure. And he added oligarchy, right? And I will be supported by my friends who will be the richest men, in, certainly in the world, if not Russia. You know, uh, one of the things that was really interesting to me was that this idea of a hybrid war, mm -hmm. because a real war is pretty easy to spot. Right. A and the problem with a hybrid war is that you don't even know you're actually in a war. And that's at that point when you've uh, gained the ability to camouflage war, you can conduct an entire battle and win it without your opponent even knowing it, which and is exactly what Russia's up to. You're absolutely right. And that is what they're doing. As a matter of fact, that phrase, hybrid warfare, is how they describe this strategy of mm -hmm. doing... Uh, before you get into an active shooting war, you frame the entire information sphere of your opponent with information that you have either co-opted, like Fox News, mm -hmm. or that actively work for you and see it your perspective. Characters like Glenn Greenwald and others uh, who will naturally criticize things that deserve to be criticized in your country. Uh, but to the point where it will actually damage your information sphere. We use, and the Russians still call them useful idiots. You might recall in the Soviet era, people who would just push the, push the party line without knowing they're pushing the party line. Uh, or, you know, will, you know uh, winning assets, people who know they're pushing the party line uh, for you because it benefits them mm -hmm. and it benefits their stature or their pocketbook. And there are many people like that. I have an entire chapter about the American fifth columnists, right? People in, in the alt-right and in the conservative world. So the Russians are, had sculpted, and they had practiced, uh, they had sculpted the information sphere, and they had practiced this in what we in the intelligence community called Web War One, which was the, the, the online battles against Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, the Ukraine, and even though some of them went to, you know, um, uh, like the Ukraine, went to a shooting war, they had created an information sphere that was so dominant uh, to the point where even now, do you hear anything from the Ukrainian government? You rarely hear anything from the government of the Ukraine about Moscow. Moscow has Russia today, Sputnik, still has Itar Taz, and, you know, and then by extension, harnessed WikiLeaks, which was a credible organization for, you know, 
freedom of transparency of information uh, and, and other people. And then they had the, you know, they had the windfall of Edward Snowden defecting to Moscow and coming into their hands and say, all U.S. intelligence evil and they're bad, to the point where the Russians could literally point to the world and say, we told you America was always nefarious. And pr every president's actions, whether good or bad, would look like that. It no longer required them to have to, you know, hire 500 journalists in India so that they could get one article into the AP, you know, while the other 499 fake articles were, were filtered out. Now they were just as equal as Fox News with Russia Today, you know, by, and, and, and Al Jazeera and CNN. And, and they could put that propaganda straight out and it would go right to the feeder of Fox News. And it would go right to Sean Hannity. It would go right to Donald Trump. That was, that's just their above ground way of doing it. But the way that the Russians describe it is, is that they would be able to carry out an active operation against the nation and so change the mindset of the population that they wouldn't have to invade. You've already adopted their, their position. And if you look at Donald Trump and what he says about the world, you see that that has already occurred. That's what I was saying as to the power of this book. As we look back, read through the past about how the Russians infiltrated India in a primitive time when you had to you do print journalists and get out magazines and people actually had to sit down and get something delivered to them in their hands to read rather than read it on their phones. Right. That through all those years, through from the 1920s, say almost 90 years they've been doing this, um, engineering uh, information spaces. And you say that in Crimea was one of their huge successes where they practically won the war before they fired a shot. Right. And to the point where right now, I mean, look, they even managed against the Republican Party, which had been a hardcore hawk party against Russia. And then when Donald Trump was elected, their man, they literally just walked into the convention and removed out from their platform anything about arming Crimea, uh, arming the Ukraine against Russia, which was a plank in their platform. And, and they were completely co-opted. I wrote in the book, if you don't mind me reading something. No, I like that. Uh, yeah. There was how this came about. And it said, so, it says, social media not only weaponizes opinion, it gives the attacker the ability to act as puppeteer for an, an entire foreign nation. Two Russian information warfare officers wrote a treatise describing the combat effects of a weaponized news and social media. Quote, the mass media today can stir up chaos and confusion in government and military management of any country and instill ideas of violence, treachery, and immorality and demoralize the public. Put through this treatment, the armed forces personnel and public of any country will not be ready for active defense. And, Unquote. and that is how they are saying they will harness and weaponize social media to create dissent and stoke civil war if they have to. And one half of that civil war will be on the side of the people that carried out the operation, our, our adversaries. You know, and again, when you're talking about uh, the social media, that's yet another one of our technologies that's been weaponized against us. That everything we make gets turned against us. And I guess I, you mentioned that uh, Putin knows judo. I mean, this, this is like right. uh, jujitsu on an international level. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
I, I, I think a better way to put social media is it's sort of like they've perfected the mosquito as, <laughs> as no, I mean, you know, like, like they created that. the mosquito. Like before that, no mosquitoes, right? And you had to get a disease by contacting somebody. And so they've created a mosquito. Uh, and that's what social media is, where it goes from person to person. And whatever it puts into you, it, you're a new vector for the next mosquito that bites you and passes on whatever. This is like a mosquito that where they have developed a disease to be transmitted strictly by mosquitoes and it has a 100% ability to change the person that it bites. And, and that's where it's really different. There, this is not malaria. 50% of you are not gonna survive, right? This is an information vector where once it speciates, once it populates, the the, inf the social media space, everyone believes it because it's there. And then the next person believes it because someone they trust sent it to them. This is what Soviet, that's, listen to me, Soviet. This is what the Russian Federation written combat documents, information warfare combat documents says is their goal. And I read through the NATO information warfare manual and Russian treatises on how to do information warfare, and all from the early 2000s. And they started experimenting with these during the color revolutions. And then by the time they got to 2010, they felt that they were pretty strong at this and they could actually try it. And in fact, we're just learning now that Brexit was the first, actually, it's not true. The first Scottish referendum may have been the first place that they tested social media speciation of information warfare products. We call them PPs, by the way, propaganda products. Uh, and then Brexit may have been the first activity where they directly handled people. And we're finding now that some of the biggest and richest Brexiter supporters had secret meetings with Russians. We just learned that in the last week. Even though I had written extensively about it in the book, even I didn't know the Russians were literally doing human intelligence, handling them, and then information warfare by creating products for them that they didn't even know were being created for them. And then they would both speciate uh, the world with this propaganda and change the minds of the British people to essentially vote them to destroy their own economy. And, and this kind of, uh, this notion of having everybody, having your opponents destroy themselves that's a, a really effective form of combat because you don't even have to do anything once you've, once you've infected them. This is the them. beauty of it. Is, again, look at Donald Trump as an example of where you build that matrix-like network of perception. Uh, by the way, the Russians refer to this initially as, um, as uh, reflexive control, but mm -hmm. they, it was too technical. So they changed the phrase to perception management, and it's perception management warfare where they build an, a framework around you, and no matter what you do, you are making a decision that will benefit Moscow. Donald Trump adopted the entire framework around him uh, when he met with the Russian oligarchs in 2013. And from that day onward, he has seen their interest as equal to his interest, because his interest is their interest because they put into his head that he could be rich like them if he adopted their interests, which is why when caught in an interview, 
uh, I think it was 10 days or so ago, when caught in an interview about Crimea, the first thing that popped into Donald Trump's head was, well, all the people in Crimea speak Russian. Maybe they should have that should be theirs. Well, that was the literal official line from the Kremlin during the entire invasion of Crimea. Donald Trump was not reading Pravda or not listen to me, Pravda, same thing, right? <laughs> uh, was not listening to Russia Today and watching Vladimir Putin's speeches back in 2014, okay? He wasn't. He got that because someone he knew, respected, or could benefit from said that to him. He adopted it, and then when caught, that popped into his head. That is the ex entire, uh, the entire strategy of perception management. That person lives in your information bubble, and nothing like you know CIA reports. You know the entirety of all of your advisors, the, a, a Republican Congress or 90 million Americans saying that's wrong, none of that will be able to change your perspective. You know, um, one of the things I thought was so remarkable about reading this book was that as I was reading the history of, of how Russia had been corrupting uh, governments since, and news spaces since India in the oh, yeah. 70s and stuff, um, as we read your history, we are already leaping ahead and saying, that that's happening right now that's happening right now you make your argument for us <laughs> one of the more fascinating ones that I, I let me call your attention to was the a piece of fake news that was done in the 1980s mm -hmm. that still exists on the internet today if i were to type in the words hiv oh, aids <laughs> government uh you know u.s government military what you will come up with is the original, the, if you could go back and find the original articles that the Russian intelligence had crafted at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic in the early 1980s, where they said it was a failed biological weapon experiment to kill blacks and gays. I have actually heard people on Infowars, on other conspiracy theory websites, literally say that story it the we know that that's a piece of propaganda product because uh some of the famous russian defectors after the fall of the soviet union who wrote that story <laughs> actually said we had a meeting and we sat down and we said what propaganda products could we transmit and at that time they were putting them through india because india was sort of this bridge where they would work for money and you know they could get articles into the associated press or other news agents, upi and that one made it through and spread around the world that the, you know essentially uh, ronald reagan was killing blacks you know and gays with a biological weapon called hiv aids right the aids the aids virus still it's so pervasive it still exists today and since the advent of modern social media it's just taken off and the, and you know again all these guys in russian intelligence and in vladimir putin's inner circle they know how efficient it could be but only once they became insanely rich and led this government you know old spies 
like to keep our fingers in things, right? We like, I mean, if I were president <laughs> of the United States, first thing I would do is like, I don't care about the farm programs. I want you to brief me on every human intelligence operation going on over at CIA and go, that one's fun. That's fun. You know, I mean, it's just one of those things. It's, it's reflexive for people in the community. Vladimir Putin's the same way. And if someone came to him and said, hey, remember how we, we could disable the United States. We wanted to do that using this plan in 1983, and it wasn't viable, but it's viable now. That guy would say, now, wait a minute. Okay, I want to see a PowerPoint, <laughs> you know, because it's just the nature of the animal. But if you could say, we could earn money, how would you like to control the president of the United States? We have, a, you know, we literally have the stars are aligning for us. Would you take that shot? This conversation happened. We know it happened because they took the shot, right? <laughs> Barack Obama got on the red phone with Vladimir Putin, called him and said, we know what you're doing. Do not screw with this country on election day, right? Uh, same thing, John Brennan called the head of the FSB in August 2016 and said, we know what you're doing, which means read it backwards. Vladimir Putin made that decision and you know they were sitting around vodka and it's like, what about this guy? It's just like, well, you know, we would have to directly involve ourselves in the United States. And, you know, he probably thought, they're too weak. Democracy's too slow. They're going to argue about this for years. I'll split that country in half. Watch me. Just like we did those West Germans, right? <laughs> this is the way old spies think. This old spy had the power of the Soviet Union and all the money of the rich, riches of Russia at his fingertips, and he did it. And, and you know, the uh, one of the things I thought was really disturbing was how long the Russians have been uh, trying to take apart NATO, and oh. now that they're doing it, now we can see the fruition of those plans. It is terrifying, and even this morning, it looks like Theresa May's government is Brexit's is, collapsing. It's collapsing, and. That's pretty frightening. That sounds. I can imagine that uh, over in Moscow, Putin and his Russian or in his Republican senator friends had a good laugh about that. Well, first off, you no one can drink that much, okay? There's not <laughs> no one unless you're an alcoholic can drink that much champagne and vodka for the last two years. I mean, if I was Putin, I would have to go to AA because. All they can do is celebrate. Every day, there is something. It's just like, every day, there is something where they could go, we never thought we could do that, right, in the Soviet Union. And it's like, what? The United States wants to build a physical iron curtain across the southern border? Really? It's like, yeah, really. It's like, no more vodka. Every day, there is some objective of theirs, which is not, if you look at the wall, that is not our objective. That was the objective of Joseph Stalin, <laughs> right? In the 1945, it started with barbed wire fencing, right? Yeah, and absolutely. Splitting the East from the West and creating the Iron Curtain, and then the Berlin Wall, and how this has been mainstreamed as now an American defensive, look, the Maginot Wall didn't work for France and, and, and World War One, right? And World War Two, right? Walls just don't work, you see, you know? So, but they understand that this guy, by, it's not about the wall, it's about immigration and, and about 
technically for his followers, some of them white supremacy. And Trump and the alt-right and the American conservative movement are newcomers to this because Europe since 2011, that big wave after the fall of Libya and Syria, those groups, those conservative groups were co-opted by Moscow and they are the world's leading racist on immigration, right? And as far as they're concerned, we have governments collapsing right now. Italy has just taken over with the Five Star Movement on the stopping all immigration into Italy. Okay, that's to, bad to the point news. where the the Interior Minister just two weeks ago, Matteo, um, um, uh, his name will come to me in a minute, but um, I want to say Salvi had said they are going to cleanse Italy of the Roma, the Gypsies. And that any of them that are Italian can stay, but if the others can't prove that they're from this country, they're out. And I thought, that sounds vaguely familiar. Let me go get my Ed Shearer's The Rise and Fall of the Na of Nazi Germany out here. When's the last time the Roma were put onto trains and transported? Was to Auschwitz. And I had just been to Auschwitz last November. So I got a new introduction to that whole history. And to hear that from an interior minister of a NATO nation. But then again, this is a government that was just put into power six months ago, and Steve Bannon was their mentor. Exactly, and you talk about Bannon, how Bannon has not been so much of a down and out as we might hope to oh, have no. think once he was cast out of Trump world. He's been very active in Europe, hasn't he? Bannon, how can I put it? Steve Bannon is sort of like the John the Baptist of the Trump world, right? It, I mean, beheading him did not help, okay, stop the spread of whatever the message. I'm sorry to all of us fellow Christians who, who, who might take that, but if you use the analogy, right, they mm -hmm. beheaded John the Baptist to stop the baptism thing, right, the, the getting people there and salvation through a new God, all of that. And what did it yield? Jesus Christ. <laughs> right? Steve Bannon views himself as free to be the evangelist of the alt-right philosophy, which he already got from a Russian, Alexander Dugin. Oh, Dugin. Right? Yeah, Dugin aye, is all aye. over your book. And he's a guy I've never heard about. Explain who, how important this guy is. Yeah, Alexander Dugin. F fascinating. All these hardcore ex-communists. And uh, philosophical the, kind of guys too. Yes, he's bad the, philosophy. But yeah, he's he's the Rasputin of Russia. He's mm -hmm. the he's the the whispering monk who who's behind uh, Vladimir Putin. And we don't know how influential he is to Putin, but he's very influential to everybody else. And what he did was he was an ex-communist that argued the what was called neo-Eurasianism, and Eurasianism was a movement from the 19th century that that believe that Russia, because it's 75% in Asia, has 75% of its population in Europe, should move, should, should actually be a nation that doesn't look westward, but should look inward, and should essentially, the world should come to Moscow, right? Neo-Eurasianism is where they harness that old philosophy, and they believe that the polar axes of the political world are Washington to Europe, Washington to Asia, and then China and Russia essentially standing alone. They believe that the American poles should be destroyed, 
and you destroy it by discrediting and destroying democracy. And then you take over the political parties in those countries by co-opting them, and then you re-engineer the world's polls to where Moscow to Europe to America is the new alignment of the world. So essentially, eliminating everything ever decided at the end of World War II and re-engineering it to where Moscow is the center of the universe with China as a global competitor and a cowed in, uh, United States as a third-rate country. And it's on its way. It's already <laughs> happening. You can see it. You know, uh, one of the things that, that I thought found uh, so interesting about your book was the, the power of language. And you talk about analogy. I, I mean, mm. of the many deadly weapons, we've invented rifles, atomic weapons, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Analogy is right up there, isn't it? Yes, it is. It, it really is. Um, and if you look at Donald Trump, he's a master of it. Oh, yeah. Yes. He's a master. You know, he came from the, the world WWE wrestling world, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, from time to time, he would play the role of the evil billionaire or millionaire who would have the big check, excuse me, who would have the big, oh, sorry, who would have the big fake check. Mm -hmm. And the way that the, the, the WWE would play is that you would have the evil guy who was really strong, and then you would have the righteous good guy who was really okay, but he was good of heart. And Trump would come up and say, whoever win this battle, I will give you this big fake million dollar check, right? And, and so he does these passion plays of good versus evil. Mm -hmm. Right. And he's supposed to be supporting the evil guy. Of course, the evil guy loses at like the last moment. Right. Like the he tags in the midget wrestler or somebody who comes in and wins the day. And then Trump goes, oh, I didn't know. But here's your deserved money. Right. Literally, you can go on YouTube and watch these these plays with Trump. And he knows how to use and badly metaphors and analogies to re-engineer the worldview, as they as they say, the stupid man's view of a, of a strong of of, of a of an intelligent man, or a poor man's view of a rich man, and that's what Donald Trump does best. He harnessed, as he calls them, the poorly educated, to come in and see his world the way he does. This is a New York City billionaire, or maybe a millionaire. I don't believe he's even worth a million a billion dollars coming into telling poor people from the Midwest that he's their salvation. I mean, it's literally the definition of a con man. I mean, all he's missed. And the funny thing is, he had plenty of snake oil he tried to sell. Trump steaks, Trump University, all these things. And it's like a horrible, bad version of the music man where there is no good ending and Marion the Librarian, you know, uh, has to be chased out of town because she's liberal. So it's... Uh, he's he's really good at this game. Let's let's give him credit. I, as I read the book, I, I was fascinated to think that if we look at the way Putin came to power in Russia, say about twenty years ago, am I about right? Then you could map that whole course out to the United States now, the, in the way that you have uh, a billion a billionaire taking over yeah. uh, a country. Yeah, actually. I have another piece in my book, let me see if I can find it, where I talk about how everything seems vaguely familiar. And we're not talking just about the rise of, of uh, you know, the rise of Hitler and, and totalitarians in, in, in the West, but also 
that Trump is mirroring Vladimir Putin's rise to power in Russia. Oh, yes. And uh, as I think I made a joke in here that I've said on television. I want to read it to you because it's, it's much more funny when it's accurate uh, and it, much more terrifying when it's <laughs> accurate. And, you know, I essentially said that he appeared to have an advisory command, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in the White House because he was literally, it's like he was checklisting Putin's rise to power. And like somebody had gone and found a biography and turned it into a 100-point checklist. Yeah, a PowerPoint. <laughs> a PowerPoint, and had brought it in there. And, uh, well, oh, a rat. That's what I called it. That's what I called it. I said that uh, it's it's almost like the, the Russians had a Russian... Uh, a uh, Russian advisory team in the White House, a rat yeah. in, in the White House. And it, it, it's very true. He does behave as if someone had told him, listen, first thing you need to do is consolidate power is ignore the truth, right? Say whatever you want, true or false, but hold on to that base. The second thing you need to do is co-op the church. The third thing you need to do is you need to get rid of the media. And you need to break the media down to the point where no one will believe a word they say. Then you start buying it off. And once you buy it off, you turn it into friendly uh, friendly media. Sinclair Broadcasting, for example, by putting Boris Epstein uh, on there, who every day goes out and makes a pro-Trump statement, you know, notes by Boris or whatever it is that he's doing out there. This is straight from the Putin playbook. There really is. You know, there's a rat in the White House, I think, a Russian advisory team. But I think... They have just mind melded. They just think the same way. If, but I wouldn't be surprised if he got that from Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon was a great disciple of Russian and, uh, and, and Russian Federation politics and a huge follower of Alexander Dugin to the point where he made that famous statement that he should seize himself as a Leninist <laughs> and that government should be destroyed. Uh, no, I, I think he sees himself as a as, as sort of a, a neoconservative version of the Eurasianist. Um, they use words like globalist and Atlanticist as a dirty word. I mean, we created globalism in, at the end of World War II. I mean, we literally created globalism. With we World were a War global II. power, finally. We, every can of spam in this world found itself on the other side of the world because the United States produced it, transported it, and parachuted it into that place. And at the end of the war, everyone wanted more spam or refrigerators or micro or whatever. We created that, and now it's a dirty word that we are in, engaged in the global marketplace. Absolutely uh, fascinating. Uh, it, it, one of the things I think, too, is that, that you talk about, it, it's not just Trump. For On one hand, right. there's a great part where you put it in the book where you, early on in the book you talk about compromise. About right. how this is a, a common um, technique. Blackmail, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and I did not have to be very far into that and to think, well, that tape's got to be real. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I don't know if that's the case, but it so much plays into it. And you talk about the Miss Universe pageant and that time there. I mean, it's got to be, you know, you have to ask yourself as a human being, not even mm -hmm. as an intelligence officer or, or journalist or whatever, what makes a person become or completely subordinate himself to another person who is an adversary what 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 is it 
to the point where you will li literally risk political disaster, personal disaster. Uh, the the single greatest in the single greatest investigation in the history of the United States is going on, and he is he says he's not the target. Pretty sure he's the target, right? He may not legally yet be the target, but the goal is to figure out what is up with him. And so if that's true, okay, then Donald Trump is showing that there is revealing every time he refuses to say anything negative about Putin, where he starts talking about giving Russia everything they wanted, starts talking about rewarding them for raising sanctions, which they said in the first day over at State Department, the first thing that they said was, we need to start looking for a way to raise Russian sanctions. Now, that had to come from the top in the pr transition, right? Mm. You don't walk in and say, hey, great, welcome to Foggy Bottom. Hey, let's rush, lift Russian sanctions. Another idea that came up in the first two weeks was removing U.S. forces from Europe. This you is, I, I, again, so, it's so crazy. You can't even believe it. It's, but there's it's a way to explain it, though. Okay. There is a, the way I describe it in the book mm -hmm. is the debt, I call that, is yes. it's, like be, it's like being a million dollars in debt to the Colombian drug lords. <laughs> and every day you wake up and you're, you wake up alive, you're elated that you're there. <laughs> and Donald Trump, I think every day, wakes up in debt to Vladimir Putin in such a way, knowing, knowing he's in debt, knowing whatever it is, is so bad that it would not only humiliate him, it would collapse everything he ever did in his life forever. And it's the only thing that could explain why he turns on a dime, insults everyone in the world, <laughs> but he knows that man has me, has something over on me, and I will not say anything. As a matter of fact, I'll act chummy to him. You know, if it were only Donald Trump, that would almost be a relief <laughs> because it's not Donald Trump. It's the Republican Party at he large. He has co-opted them completely. And, and that, and you talk about the NRA as yeah. well. I mean, the way they, the way they have joined uh, the church and guns in Russia is exactly the same way they've. They have we have here except for one thing the gun laws are upside down there yeah there's no yeah they are 100 percent restricted right you have to have a license you have to be registered they have to do a background investigation on you then it's controlled it can be seized at any time and you only get bird hunting shotguns and deer hunting bolt action rifles of a certain caliber they are not free to have it, ammunition is very hard to get there are no military grade weapons available in russia unless you're the mafia right or chechens uh and they fall prey to this this con man alexander torshin and a w young woman named marina butina oh, who was a furniture sales girl from siberia who one day shows up in Moscow and is now the head of a group called Right to Bear Arms in Russia. And they fly to the, to the United States and suddenly, by the way, that woman, I'm going to call that out right now. If she is not an actual trained officer of Russian intelligence, then she has been put into that role as an asset of Russian intelligence because you don't miraculously appear right from Siberia 
at furniture sales to flying to the United States within within a year to lead the effort to fund the NRA with money that would be channeled to Donald Trump. Tell me what the name of the third book is. Do you know? Yeah, I do, but I can't. I can't tell you. <laughs> you can't tell us. Yeah. All I know is it's going to be the plot to something, <laughs> and you can pretty much figure it out. You know. Do you think that, uh, um, in the, as we look at this going forward, do you think that uh, the Mueller investigation might actually just say, "Oh, I'm sorry, we can't do anything." No, there's no way. Okay. There's no way you, think you really think he's going the to The National come up with Security something. Advisor of the United States has pled guilty to lying to FBI officers. <laughs> Guess what we don't know? What was he lying about? What is so severe that he had to go up when faced with federal officers and let me tell you, I know FBI guys, I've done uh, my security clearances with these agencies. The one thing that a, a lawyer told me he goes, "Listen, Bureau guys, they have one power on this planet besides their guns. The power, the power to kill you and the power to give you a felony charge if you lie to them. That's it. Their sole fu function in life is to get you to tell the truth. So never walk into a meeting with them without a lawyer. Once you've sat down, if they say good morning, get up, look out the window, and make sure it's a good morning. <laughs> Because they could charge you with a count of felony, that it would be in an indicator that you intended to proceed through the interview to deceive them, right? <laughs> it's just like, whoa, never go without a lawyer. Don't even say, this is my lawyer. Just say, nod your head and have a seat. Michael Flynn was charged at the time with having illicit communications with the ambassador of Russia, not one, five, and then lying to the vice president of the United States about those contacts, right? He pled guilty to lying to FBI officers, but we have no clue what he lied about. When that, it's not gonna, he's, he's okay. not gonna come out and say, <laughs> I said good morning and it was actually raining. No, that's not what he pled guilty to and will be sentenced to later this year. He'll probably get sentenced to 35, 45 days. The only reason he got off on the lying to FBI officers char charge is because he agreed to cooperate and tell the truth about all the other nefarious activities going on in the Trump campaign. Do you think that the, uh, um, the, the Trump people are in contact with Russia right now? Oh, we already know that. We know that for a fact. As a matter of fact, Donald Trump, it's already been revealed that he has had secret telephone calls with Vladimir Putin that we don't learn about until months later. And it was in last November. We found out in January, last November, he had had a talk with Putin and that Putin had said to him, if you want a concession out of North Korea, stop your war games exercises with South Korea. And then the North Koreans will give you something. Okay, when we stop our defensive exercises, we immediately start degrading our ability to respond to crises in Asia, not North Korea. Russia to the north, China to the west, 
the islands of, you know, between Japan and the China and the Philippines to the south, anything that occurs on the Indian subcontinent, we lose that capacity. If you don't have guys who know how to pick up the, the secure phone, put in the right plug, say the right thing, and you've got to, you know, just sort of work through it in a crisis, valuable seconds are lost. I've been in combat operations where things needed to happen and decisions needed to happen within seconds, not minutes, not hours. The Russians understand that. And so by saying that, I wouldn't be surprised if the Russians and the North Koreans communicated. But we know Donald Trump communicates secretly with Vladimir Putin. Remember the meeting between uh, the director Dan Coats, director of national intelligence, the director of the CIA, Mike Pompeo, and the three Russian intelligence heads that just appeared out of nowhere. They were actually already in the air before we found out that this meeting was going on. That could only have taken place with a secret communication between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump where they agreed that the five heads of the three intelligence agencies would meet together and sit down in Washington, that's Donald Trump's insistence, and they would have a secret talk about cooperating. Really? That happened in January of this year, five months ago. Russians, so Donald Trump is speaking privately to Vladimir Putin, and we have no clue what's being said. It's just astonishing to think how we've gone from the axis of evil yeah. to being part of the, the axis, axis of, of autocracy. Yeah, it's true. We are. And if you look at it, it's it just, and it bloomed really quickly. I recall when Turkey in 2015, uh, November, I think it was November 2015, shot down a Russian jet that had penetrated Turkish airspace two or three times. And their F-16s were just like, oh, that's enough of that. And they shot the plane down. And we thought, wow, this is Turkey really maintaining its NATO borders, uh, being very hard line with Russia and Syria. A few months later, uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov shows up in Istanbul. Suddenly, it's all happiness and joy between Turkey and Moscow. A couple of months later, the Turkish coup uh, attempt happens. Erdogan completely eliminates everybody like he was waiting for it. Right? And now we have Turkey as essentially an autocracy and is now talking about buying the U.S. F-35 stealth jet and Russian S-400 missiles, which, by the way, gives our technology to Moscow because you've got to integrate those two weapon systems and essentially at not acting like a member of NATO. In fact, they were the ones who sent a million Syrians to Europe, provided them with rubber boats, fake life preservers that wouldn't keep you up in the water, created the entire crisis in Turkey for Turkey. You mean they created an immigration crisis at home? What a surprise. I guess well, I've never heard anybody doing that before. Created an immigration crisis for all of Europe. Sloughed it off to the Northern Europeans, and the Russians are there to pick up the pieces. But Turkey became a member of the Axis of Autocracies. Uh, uh, General Sisi in Egypt. One day where his bestest buddy, Donald Trump, gets elected. The next day, the Russian, they're buying brand new Russian weapon systems with U.S. funds. And now they started joint exercises with the Russians. And Egypt is behaving in a way that we haven't seen since the early 1980s when they were fully Russian-controlled military. They're now doing this sort of, like when Anwar Sadat was still alive, this sort of joint, mm, we have some American stuff, we have a lot of Russian stuff, but 
Suddenly, Sisi is a new member of the Axis of Autocrats. Even in Libya, Khalifa Haftar, the general who worked for us, uh, who split the country in half, has recently invited Russia to come and create a base in eastern Libya, the country we liberated, right? And aligning himself with the Emiratis and the Egyptians. Uh, Duterte of the Philippines. Wow, I mean, we could just is. go around. <laughs> but all of these people have one common thread, one thing in common. Two things, actually. Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. And they're all strong men. Uh, and I didn't bring those, those South Asian and, and Asian countries into the conversation. But if you go around Europe, uh, you know, the Jobbik party in Hungary with or Orban. Oh, you uh, give us that European tour of oh the fascists. Oh, just... my God. Europe is... Europe is on the edge to collapsing, to neo-fascist conservatism. That's the only way to describe it. Uh, I mean, look at uh, Hans Christian Strache, of, uh, or Strach, or whatever his name is, of Austria. He comes from a party founded in 1952 by neo-Nazis. No, not neo-Nazis, ex-Nazis <laughs> who survived World War II. And they now run the government of Austria. First day they were in power, they sent a delegation to Moscow to do a, a contract trade agreement, not trade agreement, political agreement with United Russia, Vladimir Putin's party. Next week, they sent a, a delegation to meet Donald Trump and Mike Flynn to create an axis between Austria, Russia, and the United States. These new autocrats. And, and the only thing that saved us, the only thing that saved Europe and democracy was the co good common sense of the French people in electing Emmanuel Macron and not Marine Le Pen, who swore on her first day she would destroy the European Union by withdrawing France from Europe and would pull France permanently from NATO. The new book by Malcolm Nance is The Plot to Destroy Democracy. Thank you for joining me, Malcolm. Well, I hope you're completely <laughs> frightened at this point, but can I, I let me just say terrified. one last thing? There's hope. We are in an existential fight for our nation's soul. The opponents of Americans' historical tradition of temperate liberty are fellow citizens who accept the words of a nation whose only information source was once Pravda, a news source that figuratively stood for fake news. We must stand and defend the accurate news media, the true stories that can be empirically counted. The one thing that all Americans have in equal share is the power to vote this travesty away. If every voter who voted for someone who embrace truth, decency, and dignity of our traditions, as opposed to a blustering xenophobe, that 65 million voters were to bring in just one person who had never voted in any election, there would be a massive tidal wave of oppos opposition to the crisis which faces our great nation. Vote plus one would bring to the polls 130 million voters. These numbers would reflect the real will of the American people. It is a time in American history where one must take a stand. Stand for the founding values of America. Malcolm Nance reading from The Plot to Destroy Democracy. Thank you for joining me, Malcolm. It's my pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.